All right, First Samuel, please, chapter 2. We are doing a character study right now on the life of Hannah, the mother of Samuel. We are going to get to Samuel before the end of the month, I think. That's my goal, because I have Christmas uh, sermons as well in December. But um, I just have enjoyed studying the life of this lady and her incredible faith in a very difficult culture and climate. Uh, the caption that goes with this is, Living Godly in an Ungodly World. And I think there's so much we can learn today uh, by application of the principles that she uh, modeled for us in the way that she trusted the Lord and followed Him, even though everything in her society really challenged her to walk the way as everyone else would. Um, as we have walked through chapter number one, a couple of observable things that we have set up before us. Uh, I used all these to make it easier. Uh, the fact that she prayed spoke to us of her dependence. She went to the Lord and trusted Him. She didn't respond to challenges, and she had plenty uh, but she did not respond to them in the way that people do even today. Um, we tend to be reactionary, retaliatory. We complain, we protest, she prayed. And I think that's a very good way to start. We were that way in chapter number one, where she went to the Lord. And that whole aspect of prayer means that she depended upon him. Uh, because if you don't need the Lord, you won't pray. Uh, that's dependence. And you may say, well, what's the point of prayer? Prayer is to remind you, not Him. <laughs> it's to remind you, need, you need Him. You need Him. And so we talked about dependence for a week. Uh, dedication was the second thing, because part of that prayer was she vowed a vow, and the vow was to give her son into the Lord's service for his entire life. And you may say, well, that's kind of impressive, but how does that show her dedication? But she had to go and drop him off. Remember? She had to leave him there and walk away. She was uh, dedicated to keeping her promise. She asked the Lord for a son. The Lord gave her the answer in a son. And it would be easy, I know, to say, but he's mine now. I'm going to keep him close. I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to raise him up. I'm going to make sure, Lord, I'm going to help you out and make sure he's a godly person. She let go of all of that, didn't she? When she walked to the temple that day, I left little Samuel, which at the least he was three years of age. We don't have the precision on that number. Uh, commentators will differ on that, but I think he was very, very young. And in that, she even left the training of this boy to Eli and his family. Is that who you would have chosen? <laughs> I don't think so. But uh, the dedication to say, Lord, this child is yours. And I promise to take my hands off and give him to you. That's incredible. I'm just going to ask this question, and it's not about getting rid of your children. Uh, it's just this. Will you be dedicated to the Lord even if no one else does? You still have a life ahead of you, don't you? 
you're given years yet to go or, or whatever the Lord has designed for us. What are you going to do with those years? Dedicate them to the Lord? Serve Him with all your heart? Keep that in the forefront? She had many options in front of her, and it would have looked even better, perhaps in her world, that she take that boy home. Because that was a sign that the Lord had favored her. She even left that there to walk home alone without little Samuel. And I'm just going to test in this, that uh, if nobody else in this world is going to be godly, will you? If no one else is going to be dependent on the Lord, will you? If no one else is going to be dedicated to Him, will you? The third D was devotion. And we talked about this in chapter number two. We're catching up to where we are. All right? The devotion is seen in the first couple of verses of chapter number two when she begins this prayer. This was after the Lord had given her Samuel as a son. She had nurtured him for three years. That's my estimation of, of the fact that when he was weaned, she took him to the tabernacle to give him away that day. She knew that day was coming. And she went to the tabernacle in order to deliver her son. She took an offering with her. We see that all at the end of chapter number one. She took an offering with her. She went to Eli. She announced to Eli that this is the child I prayed for. You were there when I prayed, and the Lord has answered my prayer, and I'm bringing him here, and he's dedicated to the Lord as long as he shall live. He's going to stay here. And then she went into this prayer. And it's really more than just a thank you prayer. We started in on it last week a little bit, and uh, I divided it in two parts on purpose because of the, the, the vast you know, quantity of things to speak about here. But um, the last week we looked at verse 1 and 2, and that's where I saw her devotion. Her devotion, when she declared her praise to God, uh, she recognized His character. And I love the first two verses. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. No one. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Her devotion to this this God, to have known his character and been able to say this in words was not because, as I showed you last week, it's not because she had read it in some other part of Scripture. The fact of the matter is, almost every word she said was later used by other writers. This was new information for a lot of people to have heard, uh, and yet at the same time, it wouldn't have been so new if you knew the Lord. She was living in a day and age where people obviously didn't know him very well. And it's, uh, it's interesting to me how her words just uh, pulsated with theological terms. Incredible concepts because she knew her God. She knew her God. So today we're going to move on to verse 3 uh, all the way down to verse number 10. 
And we're going to look at the actions of her God as she mentions them in this prayer. All right, watch with me. And here, I'll give you the clue what to look for. Look for the setup of the verse phrase that says, The Lord did this. The Lord did this. The Lord did this. All right, watch for how many times that appears in these seven or eight verses. Verse 3. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol, and He raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, and He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He sets the world on them. He keeps the feet of His godly ones. But the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall man shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. That's a mouthful, isn't it? You ready? We're going to have fun with this today. Heavenly Father, help us when we study things that speak of you, we're, we're so limited in our understanding, so limited in our, our perspective at times. We, we know, Lord, when we look at you, you're so very great. And I pray that that might be impressed upon us today as we study from this passage. It's a powerful passage of the actions of our God. And I pray that uh, as we sit here together and see these words, we will be in awe of who you are. And of all things, Lord, I thank you that you happen to have your attention toward us and you love us. Thank you for all you've done. And may our words reflect these things too as we study through them. May they become quick words to our thoughts and from our hearts as we think about how great you are. We give you the praise for all this as we study it now in Jesus' name. Amen. One word I'm going to set before you. Contrast. Contrast. So often we find this technique used in Scripture. I think it's fabulous. If you study like the book of Proverbs, you'll see that's a, a very typical way of, of showing truth is to use contrast. This is and this is not. This is and this is not. And there's a lot of contrast all through this passage. And this is presenting really... The smallness of man compared to the greatness of God. That's what you're seeing in the actions that are in front of us here. Uh, there are passages in, in Scripture that you and I would call, you know, this is my favorite, or this is my favorite, or something like that. There's several passages. I know we are like that. Um, but there's, there's one that particularly interests me. Keep your bookmark here and go to Isaiah, if you will, please, for a minute. No, more than a minute. I can't say a minute. It's going to be more than a minute. Uh, but Isaiah 40 is where I'd like you to go. 
Love this chapter. Love this chapter. Most of you know it, at least the last verse or so. Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. You know that song. Right? It's in your head now. You hear it? All right. Uh, Isaiah 40. Now, let me set you up for this chapter, because this is what begins way, way back earlier in the book. Isaiah had a problem to contend with, as he was a prophet in a time when quite a few of the kings he had to deal with were very ungodly men. He also was blessed at other times to have godly men as kings. Hezekiah was one good example of that. But also he had to deal with Manasseh, who was about the worst of the bunch, and a man named Ahaz. You've heard of an Ahab, but there's an Ahaz. And Ahaz was a king in Judah. And he also was a man who had a terrible, terrible problem with idolatry. Matter of fact, because of the kings that led uh, the people in idolatry, the land of Israel was covered with idols, especially in the Judean territory where the temple was set up. You would think that uh, the folks would be a lot more dedicated to the Lord because the temple's there. But that was not the case. Even later when Manasseh became king, he put idols in the temple because he wanted them everywhere. And Ahaz is living in a time when idols were going everywhere, every direction, people would turn to an idol here or turn to an idol there. And Isaiah would constantly ask the question, why? Why do you keep turning to idols? They can't do a thing for you. But you still choose them instead of God. And uh, you'll find the book to be not only a, a beautiful book to read, but a very hard book to read. Because of the idolatry issue. And, and here's King Ahaz, living it up in all these situations, and yet at the same time he's in deep trouble. The enemies are coming upon him, and instead of turning to God, he's turning to idols to help him. And in walks Isaiah. And Isaiah comes up to Ahaz and he says, um, you know, this is a perfect opportunity for you to trust God. Why don't you, you turn to him? And trust Him. And matter of fact, He is so willing to show you that He will help you, that He will give you a sign. Any sign you want. It doesn't matter what you ask. It could be as high as heaven itself. It could be anything down to the pit, the lowest parts of the earth. You name it. Give Him a sign. And the Lord will fulfill that sign and show you, I'm here with you. Trust me. He refused. He said no. Ahaz, Ahaz, ask a sign for yourself. This is in chapter 7. You recognize it. Ask a sign from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol, high as heaven. And Ahaz said, I will not ask. And then he adds this, nor will I test the Lord. Mr. Ahaz, you test the Lord every breath you take. This man says, I'm not going to test the Lord. That sounds pious, doesn't it? For a guy who's just involved in idolatry and sinfulness as he is, he says, I won't do it. And so Isaiah says, okay, okay, listen. Listen, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will also try the patience of my God as well? So the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive. You ever read that passage? Chapter 7, verse 14, we pull it out at Christmas time. 
You say, oh, it looks great on a Christmas card. We talk about the virgin conceiving and, and all this stuff. We talk about the birth of Christ and Christmas and all that stuff. But it's in the context of a very ungodly king who will not trust God. So when you get to chapter 40, you've added 13 more chapters of that. All right, A lot of trouble has gone through. And by the time you get to chapter 40, just watch the words. And I'll show you what happens as this text unfolds in front of you. Start in verse 1 with me here. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended. Her iniquity has been removed. She has been received. She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. There's a voice calling. Clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be brought low. Let the rough grounds be made plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Right away you're saying, yes! <laughs> right? We want that! That would be excellent! Could you imagine the Lord just walks right onto the scene? Wouldn't that be great? You know, we look forward to the Lord coming. It could be now. It could be today. You excited about it? No? Okay. I'm trying to get you into the passage here. It's like, wow, this is good stuff. This is great. This is good. And a voice says, call out. Verse 6. Then he answered, what shall I call out? What do I say? You ready? Here it comes. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The flower withers. I mean, the grass withers. The flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion. Bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem. Bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with His arms ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. Now, this is power. And then look at verse 11. Like a shepherd, He would send His flock. Is that tender? In his arms he will gather his lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Then verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Start thinking big. Real big. I've always been impressed to go and see the ocean. With my parents living down in Florida for all those years, we'd go down. We'd see the Gulf of Mexico. That looked huge. Then we made our way out to the Atlantic Ocean out there by um, wherever we were. Where did we go? Virginia? No? Maryland. Yeah, that's it. We were up there on the East Coast there. And there's the Atlantic Ocean. It's like, wow, is that huge? We went out to Oregon, standing there. Looking into the Pacific Ocean. Wow! That's a lot of water. How does the Lord measure it? With a hand. He doesn't even need two hands. 
one hand. That's, who measures the water in the hollow of his hand? Who marks off the heavens by a span? You stare up into the sky, and we've got a big one around here. And God could measure it like this. One. Oh, <laughs> just one step? It says here, marks off the heaven by a span. He calculates the dust of the earth by its measure. He knows how much dust there is. You might be thinking deserts. Or maybe you're thinking of your house. He knows. He knows. He weighs the mountains in a balance. The hills in a pair of scales. He's directed the Spirit of the Lord. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Who has his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? That's very much like the end of the book of Job. When he's confronting Job, and Job oh, Job, you're so wise. You're so wise. If only you were there when I was creating things, you could have helped me. You could have told me how to measure things and set things up. Who gave God counsel? Who helped him understand? Who is the one that gave God understanding? Did he sit in a classroom? Did he have a teacher? No. Who taught him in the paths of justice? By the way, who sets the rules for justice? He does. He didn't learn it from some university somewhere. If you do, I don't know. But he knows it. Who taught him knowledge? Who informed him of of the way of understanding? Behold, verse 15 says, The nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. And behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Lebanon is mentioned in the next verse. Lebanon was a very populated, a tree-populated country. That's where they went if they needed trees, if they needed lumber. They went to Lebanon. Lebanon was loaded with it. And he says, you know what? Lebanon's not even enough to make my lunch over if I burnt the whole place down. There's not enough wood there. There's not enough beast for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. Let me give you a recommendation. Try this. Type out that little phrase. All the nations are nothing before him. Tack it on the top of your TV screen. Next time you watch the news. We live in a day and age where we're intimidated, threatened. We, just, we don't understand, you know, what's going on in this world. Why is this like this? All these other things. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? And this question is raised suddenly. And Isaiah answers it. He says, okay, so you go out and make an idol. <laughs> You go out and craft an idol. You get some good wood, or maybe you get some silver, or maybe you get some gold, and you hire a craftsman, and you shape this thing, and you make this thing, and then when it's all done, you pay this guy for it, and you pick it up under your arm, and you carry it home, and you put it on a pedestal, and some people even chain it down so it doesn't fall over. Who is your God? Who is your God? This is his, his whole question. Don't you know? We'll jump to verse 21. 
Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth that he who sits above the circle of the earth, its inhabitants are like grasshoppers? He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He reduces rulers to nothing. He makes judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. They have just been sown. They have just taken root in the earth. He just blows on them and they're gone. They're gone. Storm carries them away. So, verse 25, To whom then will you liken me, that I should be his equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on a high. Look at all those stars. I paraphrase a little, verse 26. Who named them? Who leads them forth by number? Who makes sure that they're never missing? He knows them all. What do you say, O Jacob? He goes back to him in verse 27. What do you say, O Israel? God doesn't see what you're doing. My ways are hidden from the Lord. The justice do me escapes his notice. Oh, he won't bother us. He won't, hurt. he won't work with us. It's okay. We can do what we want. He doesn't notice. You hear that? That's right there in the text. It's right there. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends, of the earth does not become weary or tired. He doesn't close his eyes to rest. He does not fall asleep. He doesn't ever blink and things go by. He's always alert. He's always aware. His understanding is inscrutable. That means you can't understand his understanding. It's far beyond you. I know, youths grow weary. They get tired. Vigorous young men stumble badly. Yet those, watch this, this is important. Those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. The picture is not that suddenly you become strong. The word here in the Hebrew, the word to wait on the Lord, if you take a, a pole and you take a vine and this vine is growing up around this pole, you've seen that before, Many times they're weeds and you yank them back down. But you've got this vine or plant growing up a pole. What is its strength? The plant? The plant is holding up the pole? Uh-uh. Its strength is in the pole. You pull the pole out and guess what? The plant collapses. Here's the picture. Those who wait on the Lord, they entwine themselves around the Lord. Guess what their strength is? You see the picture? Whenever we turn to anything else, we're trusting that thing or that person to be our strength, our guide, our wisdom, our, our support, our sustenance. We're came, counting on it to help us live. Israel had a big problem with that. They were trusting everything else but the God who made them. He says, I'm the one that if you trust, I will be your provider. I will be your provider. That's chapter 40. It's just a powerful thing to see. But you know what? Isaiah wrote this long time after Hannah prayed this way. Hannah's prayer, again, is so surprising to me as I read through it. It's, it's a contrast to her culture. 
It's a contrast to the ungodly world she lived in. She so much understood the Lord in this prayer. Deeply ingrained faith that she could look at his actions and say, this is why I trust him. That's not evident in the lives of anybody around her. That's not evident in the leadership around her. That's not given to her because she's in a community of godly people. She's standing out there all by herself as this shows in, in a culture, but she's not all by herself, is she? Where's her strength? It's in the Lord. She's one that's hanging on to his actions. Faith is knowing God rightly and trusting him. And that's exactly what we see in these words. So I want to set up this little contrast with you here as we go through this prayer. Let's see. I've got to go all the way over here. This is great. Uh, the contrast. Start in verse number three. Boast no more so very proudly. I mean, what can we boast of? We're grasshoppers, remember? We're just dust on the scale, right? The Lord blows and guess where we go? Poof. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with Him actions are weighed. I'm going to give you a list of contrasts. Start this way. Alright, you got one column. This is column one, this is column two. Start with two columns in your mind. Side one, you've got the proud. You've got the arrogant, who say much and know very little. You ever notice people like that? There's a few of them still out there. Alright? They boast much, but they control nothing. Not in contrast to what we see in, in these texts. They don't know. What's on the other side? you got the Lord. The Lord, the God of knowledge. I like that little phrase. The God of knowledge. The one who can set our works on a scale and evaluate their value. He can look at everything you do and say, that, that was okay. Uh, that wasn't any good. That's okay. No, that's no good. He can weigh every single action and evaluate their value. On this other side, verse 4, The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Now I've got a third column. I've got one column of the boastful and the proud, the second column of the Lord, and the third column now is the weak guy. There's a weak person here. We've got the bow of the mighty. We've got the feeble girding on strength. Now let me describe the feeble for you because you might appreciate this guy. Who is he? he? The word is he totters. He's got a bit of a waver problem. Actually, when you get down to it, his ankles are weak. You ever have weak ankles before? I've broken this one before. Don't do that. All right? That's not a good feeling to break your ankle. But that makes a difference. When you've got a, a bad ankle, it affects an awful lot of stuff during the day. How you can get around and all the rest. Here is a picture of a guy with bad ankles. He's feeble. He's faltering. He's stumbling. He's tired. He's falling. He's fainting. Right, So you've got the bow of the mighty, and it's shattered. 
the feeble putting on strength. You've got in verse 5, those who were full, they had everything. They had really incredible meals. They had lots. And now they are hiring themselves out for a piece of bread. They had to go to work in order just to earn enough to have something to eat. And then on the other side, this guy that's feeble in his same category are those who are hungry, and suddenly they're not hungry anymore. You have on this side, there's the barren giving birth to seven. And the other side, the lady who has a lot of children, and she's now drooping. Well, we always think that anyway, right? Lots of children, you start to droop. But this is the word here. She, she who has many children languishes. She, she droops. She droops. So you've got the mighty warrior in this category. A mighty warrior. He boasts in his weapons and yet finds them useless. Here's one who had so much to eat and was full. And now they're desperate for food. And they even make themselves a slave just to pay for their next meal. You have one who had pride in having so many children, and now they're completely worn out and drooping. And that's one category. And then go over to that little feeble guy. There he is, weak, but now he's strong. There he is, hungry, but now he's satisfied with food. There he, they had no children, and now there's seven of them there. Seven in that family. And when we start comparing human to human, we can say, oh, that's pretty obvious. We can understand that contrast, can't we? Between those who have nothing and those who have everything, and these ones failing and these ones succeeding, we can say, okay, we get that. But here's the whole thing. Take both of those and contrast them with the Lord in the middle. Because the picture is the same. Whether you've got this guy or this boasting of his own strength or this guy who has no strength, guess who they both need? The Lord. They both need the Lord. And the contrast now sets up where it takes on this picture, not just the warrior, the satisfied, the hungry, the weak, the strong, but put the Lord in the picture. Put the Lord in the center of this. What's it say? This is real simple in verse 6. There is no life if He doesn't give it. There is no life if He doesn't give it. For He gives life. He makes alive. He also kills, by the way. That's his department too. He brings people down to Sheol. That's the grave. He raises people up from a grave. The Lord makes the poor. Did you hear it? He makes the poor. Jesus was confronted with that one day by a guy named Judas. Oh, why don't we sell that perfume and give that money to the poor? What was the Lord's answer? Oh, the poor you always have with you. Right? We have a lot of poor in this world. Some people say, we got to fix that. We, I'm not trying to be political or anything. I'm just simply saying, who made the poor? Let's put this down in perspective here. Who's the one who gives life? You can answer this in a lot of political ways. You can answer this in a lot of social ways. But let's talk about God's sovereignty here. God makes 
the poor. God makes the rich. God brings low. God exalts. He raises the poor out of the dust. He lifts the needy out of the ash heap. He lets them sit among the nobles. He gives them a seat of honor. He, he gives, he, isn't that amazing just to read? So many times they say, well, I'm, I'm just nobody. The Lord doesn't give me any attention. I don't have anything. I can't contribute anything. I'm, I'm poor. I'm wore out. I, I'm tired. I've had trouble. I'm just going to sit on this ash heap. The Lord said, nah, I can pick you up. I can pick you up. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He sets the world on them. Have you found them yet? Have you found the pillars of the earth yet? Nobody has. God says that's what He did. He actually hung the earth out there, something, on something. It's hanging there. You say, wow, that's big stuff. He controls life. He counts days. He gives what we need to live. He brings success. He raises up. He lifts. He establishes. He keeps you. Let me ask you, which ledger do you want to stand in right now? If you take all three in front of you, you've got the the arrogance on this side, you've got the weak on this side, but the one in the middle is the one who's trusting the God who is sovereign and strong. Which column do you like? You see why Hannah chose? Yes, she knew this side, didn't she? She knew what it was like to be run over. She knew this side too, because that was the rest of her family. That was the other wife in the family was running her over. She saw the arrogance. She saw the proud. She saw the mighty. She saw the one with many children. And here she was feeble and weak and sitting on the ashes more or less. And then she says, but that's not what it's all about. It's about him. And that's her prayer. It's going the actions of Him. Not me, not them, but Him. He is the one who controls life. Then you get to verse 16, and it's so profound. The worst thing you can do is try to overmatch the Lord. There's a beautiful psalm, Psalm 34. We're not going to go there today. Wish we had a lot of time, we would. But Psalm 34, it gives in its, its attention to how God comes to help us when we call on Him in the day of trouble. Call upon Him, call upon Him. It's just kept worded there. And how the Lord gives attention to His own when they call upon Him in the day of trouble. But it comes with a warning. And in Psalm 34, verse 16, it says just this one phrase, and it says, the face of the Lord is against evildoers. And I think that's a stunning thing to think about. The face of the Lord, there's an evildoer. Many times when we see an evildoer, we think, oh, nobody's going to deal with that one. They're going to get away with it. You know how that is. They, they're living in a world where they can't get away with it. There's some video I saw in the news yesterday about people going into a store and just filling their carts with stuff, wheeling it out, loading their carts right there in the front of the store and driving off. Didn't pay for it. He said, how would I get away with that? This world is full of people who think they get away with things like that. The last thing you want to, to know in this verse right now is that the Lord is staring right at you if you're an evildoer. He sees and He's against you. 
There's a lot of people that can be against you, but this is the one you don't want. The Lord's face is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. That's a powerful phrase. But what Hannah asked in verse number 10 is similar to that thought. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. You can fight and kick against us all you want. But you will be shattered. Against them he will thunder from the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. He will exalt the horn of his anointed. And this powerful explanation at the very end is, He is God. All the actions are set there in front of you. He is God. You've got problems. You've got challenges. Who do you go to? Who do you take it to? Hannah knew where to go. I'm still impressed, aren't you? How did she know all that? She must have known him. To have known him that way. And then she made a comment at the end of verse number 10. Some of you might have caught that. Her comment at the end of verse number 10 has stunned the commentators to this day. They don't understand. How did she know about a king? There wasn't a king. This was long before David became king. Or even Saul was a king. There was no king. How could she say, he will give strength to his king? And they say, oh, 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 well that's obvious. This is their commentary, okay? I'm just going to read it to you like they say it. This was written by somebody else. Somebody much later could have said this. Nah, Hannah, she, don't give her the credit for this. Somebody else penciled that in. That's not the right. That she, there wasn't any king back then. And so they go walking through it, erasing all the power and the miraculous nature and the foresight and everything else that comes with the text. And they say, it's historically impossible, but it is not theologically impossible. Not if you know God. Here's the fact. She she didn't have a king standing in front of her. Maybe she never even heard a lot of these theological words that the Lord is speaking through her. Remember, this is given to her by the Holy Spirit. It's in Scripture. Does he know that there's a king coming? Yes, he does. Could he have had Hannah mention a king before there was a king? Yes. Could he have mentioned that God has an anointed one? That God has promised a king? Do you know when he promised a king? Go all the way back to Genesis and you'll find it. God had promised a king. Did the people expect a Messiah? Yes. Guess when that was promised? Go back to Genesis 3 when there was a promise of that. How many other people are speaking about it in Hannah's day? Still anticipating that it's going to happen. Everyone in her day did right in their own eyes. Hannah says, God has a king. God has the anointed. And she could pray in those lights because she's not surprised at what God is able to do. I don't have any problems with that little part of the text. (laughs) Because she's looking at God, not at man. She's looking at what God is able to do. And all the way through, these are words spoken by a godly person in an ungodly world. And this is what it comes down to. They are words that are different. 
different from what's being said, different from what's being thought, different from that culture, different from the people, different from everybody else around them. It's different. These words speak of a difference that God makes. And people who believe in a God like that will speak differently. People who believe in a God like that will act differently. People who believe in a God like that will pray differently. Because they see the contrast between God and man. And they understand this. So I added a new word to your list of D's, didn't I? You've got a dependent person. You've got a dedicated person. You've got a devoted person. And now we have one who knows the difference. She's different, isn't she? In her day and age, she's different. The contrast in this prayer shows it all the way through. And I just want to ask you something. Who is your God? Who is the one that you worship and adore? Who is the one that you trust and follow? Is he not different than everything else around? Is he not greater than this world that you're living on? How might we be a contrast to the world around us? How can we be different? Do you want to be like them? The ungodly? Do you want to be like them? I don't think you do. I just want to ask, how are you going to be different? Don't think for a minute it's something you're going to manufacture in yourself. Because you're going to be on one side of the ledger or the other. Either you're going to get arrogant because you think you're succeeding, or you're going to see your failure after failure after failure, and you're going to lay there in the ash heap and say, I can't do it. But when you come to know the God who makes a difference, He changes your life. He changes your prayers. He changes your actions. Because we're to be godly in an ungodly world, and it's time we make a difference. Trust Him. That's what it came down to. Trust Him. And that's what I call us to. When I read this text and I think it through, I say, Wow, Lord. How many of us say, I want to be like that. I want to think like that. I want to know God like that. I said that before you today, because that's where Hannah brings us in our thoughts. As we study through her life, a lady who is dependent Dedicated, devoted, and different. May we be like that too. Heavenly Father, what an incredible text this is to work through. And we just hardly scratch the surface with words to try to describe how great you are. You're so much bigger than these words even. We haven't even started to understand, nor probably could we fully understand if we even tried. But your word has been recorded for us in these words so that we might see them and learn from them. We're not dependent upon this country or this world or any leader in this world. We're not dedicated or devoted to them. We're devoted to you. And we are called to live godly, just like our God who is godly. We're to be like him, even in the midst of a culture like ours. May we be found different. May the world notice the difference. But Lord, even if they don't, may you see the difference as we seek to walk your way, to know you, to know you well, 
to see your actions around us and to, to trust you, to simply trust you in a world like ours. Thank you for giving us an example to see and to learn from today. And I pray that it makes an impact when we walk away here from here determined to be different, different because our God is with us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.